My name is Kim Rothwell, and this is The Return to Embodiment. In this conversation, I'm talking with Andy Mangan. Andy is Associate Professor of Theater and Communication at Wheaton College, and he got his MFA from Southern Methodist University in 2002 and has been working at Wheaton since 2005. One of the things that Andy does is the directing. He's a magnificent actor, and he has done a series of performances, but he also works on the back end, on the set design and creation. He takes a black box theater and transforms it into another world for audiences. And those skills also translate into his other gig, which is woodworking. He finds pieces of wood and allows what could be to arise from these pieces of wood. He is an artisan. He creates amazing work through Mango Woodworks. He and I went to Wheaton College, and while we were there, we were in the same acting troupe workout, which was profoundly formative for me. Welcome to this conversation where we talk about embodiment, not just as an individual phenomenon, but as something that arises between us, something that connects people to one another to become something larger, like an organism. Embodiment as shared being, community, collective consciousness, an antidote to the isolation and dehumanization so prevalent in our world through the theater. I'm Kim Rothwell, and I'm welcoming you to the return to embodiment. How's this been going? You've done a lot of these now. I listened to a few of them, and Happy there's a lot on there. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening. Yeah, so I've been doing it um, since 2019, and it started off just interviewing people who are in the dance moon therapy. Uh, yeah. Teachers at EEIC, where I teach dance therapy. And then it sort of expanded out to be people that I want to have conversations with. (laughs) A great way to stay in touch is to make a podcast. (laughs) I'm moving, but don't worry, I'll interview you. Yeah, that's that's right. It's it's a little more officialized than usual conversations with friends, but you know, whatever. (laughs) You're so accepting. So uh, you've listened to a few of the podcasts. Did you listen to one with Chad? I did a while ago now, right? That was like the early, I mean, that was my early entree into it. Uh, and then David, who I know being around here and being around, um, you know, just them, I've met him a few times and um, some of the art that is referenced in there, like the sky cube, he and I like talked about the construction of at some points, you know, along the way. So were you ever one of the people that he enlisted to drag it around? No. He was more like, I need your carpentry expertise to know how this joint is going to be, is going to work. And then we talked through it. So, yeah. So I'm super excited to have this conversation with you, not only because I think it's going to entertain me, but also because there's a couple of different places where embodiment kind of comes into what you do because you're an acting professor, you're an actor. So that's one of the languages. You will be the first actor that I've interviewed, actually. And then you also have this craftsman part of you that's about building things and working with wood and making gorgeous pieces through mango, yeah, mango woodworks. And you share those on social media. They're beautiful. Thank you. Oh, yeah. I'm excited for this conversation and um, to see where it goes. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) So um, we met. Do you remember when we met? Uh, I mean, if if the target area is just college, I I remember that. But I don't remember the specific moment. 
Um, but I remember being in college with you. Yeah. Do you remember where in college? It's a little bit more specific than that, in my opinion. Not the specific moment, but. Oh, yeah. I mean, yes, we met as part of being in this theater company called Workout, uh, which I'm still involved with somehow. I've not moved past that phase in my life, and you thankfully have. No, you're um, so lucky. I loved Workout. Yeah, so that was the sort of where we met each other is is being in that crazy group for a short time. I mean, I was gone before too long, but um, just a short time of doing theater together in this weird community at a weird evangelical college, you know, where I still work. So, um, uh, but yeah, again, just a place to kind of practice. Uh, some of the things that you're talking about I certainly did not have a context for what we were actually doing but I do now you know to describe that a little bit more specifically but um, that group that we were a part of I won't I won't give away any of our ages but it's been going on for 45 years 50 years um, and sort of continuing in almost the same form it, it started in in the you know early 70s so um, it's still here. It's still kind of doing its thing. There are still students who are Kim and Andy, you know, version six uh, in in there doing doing it. So yeah. there are people who come in and lie on the ground and just weep like I did. <laughs> yes, I'm, yes, I'm, I, there are people who do that. Yeah, I don't lead it myself. Um, it's it's part of our department, but the group itself is sort of like. Uh, it molds to whatever the per, you know person needs. There are people who go to work out and sleep, right? Because what they really need in college is an, an hour of rest in a community that says to them, "Go for it." Uh, and and I think you've got to sort of find your whatever the thing is that that can serve for you. Um, and I think there are people who probably lay down and weep, um, Kim. So you would feel right at home. Yeah, the pressure cooker of life outside of workout and then walking into workout. I just remember huge room with a carpet and people were just lying on the ground or sometimes standing, but most of the time just lying on the ground, stretching, breathing, making sounds. Mm -hmm. it, when you say weird, it was very weird very weird very weird and it was so healthy for me yeah. to be in a space that allowed for whatever wanted to come up and out to come up and out yeah yeah i i think that's a great way to describe it in some ways is a space to allow stuff to happen right and i think for different individuals there's different expressions of that and probably on different days different versions of that there is a kind of structure to what the community is supposed to be doing. It is the practice of theater. But within that, there's a lot of leeway. Um, there's always the opportunity to say no to anything in there, right? We have this thing, you remember macaroni. You can macaroni on, I don't even know how that started, but you can, macaroni is a phrase for basically getting out of anything that you're not comfortable with. Um, so in, essentially, you can macaroni on the whole experience. Um, now, there's another side to that. I mean, I would, I would argue that you can macaroni intentionally with an idea that this isn't exactly right for me and then find your way back into it. Um, but I think there's different versions of, of that for different students, depending on where they're at. Well, I remember this distinctly from my time at workout. <clears throat> um, it was instilling the idea of consent and ownership yeah. of your choices. Totally. And and that cannot happen without the permission to macaroni. Yes. And part of that comes because it's a place where we specifically are saying, disconnect from your big old brain, which is the only thing you trust, and connect to your body. As you know, lots of things happen when you begin to start that process. And if you've never done that, which many of us in sort of the evangelical subculture are taught not to do, for heaven's sake, a lot of things can happen, right? So. It is a place where we're intentionally saying, hey, what is your, what is, what is going on with your actual body? Which is, I think it's good Christian practice. It's good theater practice. And it's great practice for students at this point in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. So we've already kind of got a 
gotten moving toward this question that is the question I ask all my interviewees, and then it's how is embodiment to you? Uh, yes, I was. I knew this was coming, and I didn't prepare enough. But here we go. Uh, yeah, I, I think it, I think specifically, I would say the first thing that comes to mind is embodiment is part of good practice in theater. So because I teach theater, because I teach actors and direct them, I, I think we, this conversation is happening all the time, especially in an acting classroom, where you're talking about what we what we describe as an instrument, your instrument being a tool to tell stories, and how you being more connected to it, more aware of it, more in it, is is useful to you in the process of telling stories. So, an embodiment is crucial baseline for anything acting, uh, and it is. You know, it extends beyond the individual. Maybe we don't get into now, but I think there's also a really interesting thing with live theater in terms of the actual presence of an audience that touches on embodiment that I think is really important and really unique to theater. Uh, and I think that is an underrepresented conversation, this embodiment. But in my day to day working with actors, I think it's more about that process of saying, how are you actually paying attention? So what is going on with your instrument? How do you have more access to it? And if you have more access to it, there's you have more possibility to be able to, a good storyteller in this in this particular craft. Um, so yeah, I think that that word embodiment is part of the lingo. You know, I, I use it uh, pretty frequently um, in these contexts. So that's the first way I think I would describe it. Mm -hmm. Do you have a second and third way you describe it? Well, the audience one is a big one to me, especially here we are post-pandemic, having gone through two years of all kinds of versions of theater. And I, and I would say the most striking thing was there were theaters all across the country trying to do something, I mean, just trying to survive and trying to keep telling stories, right? So filmed versions of theater where you're getting to see the story. And, and I appreciate and respect all of what we were trying to do during that time, but it's not the real thing. Uh, it is so vital that theater happens in front of a live audience that that kind of sort of second version of embodiment, which isn't necessarily the individual as much as just how people participate in a story in a room. I mean, we often say in theater, it can't happen without an audience. It's unlike any art, any other art form, right? You can paint a painting, not necessary for an audience to see it. In fact, when an audience see it, you probably won't be there to experience it with them. Um, same thing is true in film. Same thing is true in TV and all these other forms. The, uh, theater is dependent on that relationship to the audience. It is different every performance and every moment because of the actual people in the room. And that creates a kind of very powerful, strange dynamic, especially in the world that we're living in, which is I mean, we are living in a digitized society on almost every level. And uh, theater becomes a kind of counter-cultural, you know, pressing against that. I just went to a play last weekend, just in the first few moments of saying, oh, that's a live person, you know, in front of me doing this weird stuff. It's a, it's a strange experience. I, I do have an embodiment experience of that. And we share something together that's happening live. There's a similar... Uh, process here in dance, right? Dance is in some ways the same way. There's overlap there. Yeah, that performance allows for a relationship to unfold. And I like that you're saying audience because there's, <clears throat> there's like a collective, um, energy that happens yes. where we're totally. moved along the story together and their totally. bodies are moving with the people that they witness that's right yes it, it is the, it is the shared experience between performer and audience it's also the shared experience between audience sitting next to each other right and so community begins to happen if if the person on your right gets tickled by something weird that happens in the play and you're sitting next to them it changes your relationship to the play and to the person next to you and carry that out over hundreds of people. And you start to see like, this is it's a living organism, 
right? A, a performance is a living organism. It can change nightly. It can change from moment to moment because weird things happen. You affect it. I, you can watch a movie and you can yell things, but it is not going to affect Brad Pitt's performance, right? He is not doing anything different. If you start yelling in a theater, I guarantee some things will happen. <laughs> People might ignore you, but it will change the room immediately, right? So you, you have a kind of agency and responsibility as an audience in this live environment that you're in. And that's a, that's a wonderful, crazy thing. I can really see how you're saying it is countercultural and counter-digitized yeah. counter life. There's a playwright, um, Ayad Akhtar, who I like, and about five years, five years ago, he wrote an article in the New York Times about this, and he called it the antidote to digital dehumanization. Theater is the antidote to digital dehumanization. And it's a great, he describes in this short article, this idea that theater is so hard to get your hands around, so difficult for companies to monetize when everything else digital is being monetized. And we as human beings are being monetized in some way by a digital economy. And his whole point in this article is to say, you can't, you can't do that. You can't control it in the same way, right? And, and when it starts, it starts. You can't stop it. You can't pause it. It moves. You can change it by what you, how you react to things. It's this sort of living thing. And it, it, it is very opposed to a lot of the other ways in which we receive story. The craft is honed, but it exists in this nuanced place of the unknown. Yeah. You cannot perfect it. It's life yeah. unfolding. Totally. Yeah, and there's all these minute, like live moments, right? In our conversation here, we could script this the way we want, but weird things will happen and we will change the, the moment. That happens in a theater all the time between actors and between audience. You know, you say something or do something and someone laughs that you didn't expect. It changes you. It changes the performance. So being able to pay attention to that, that's a level of the craft of the embodiment in an actor, but it's also just, I don't know what you call it, communal embodiment, right? Of the experience of watching theater. Community begins to take place that is unique to that night, to that performance. Uh, and that, that's the second level for sure that I'm saying, hey, this embodiment thing is important, not just so that actors get it, but that's why I'm pushing hard to hold on to live theater because I think it's different than anything else. And you do a lot of producing and directing of live theater. Yes, I do. Um, yeah, so I am in charge of making sure that we do the productions at the college. So we do three productions a year on our main stage, and then we do, you know, the student projects and things along the way. And then, yeah, we started doing the Shakespeare in the Park in the summer. It's been kind of a big endeavor uh, over time. So, yeah, I'm involved in all of those things, making sure they all kind of get to the place where the show opens and the curtain is ready to rise. And uh, yeah, I'm involved in all those parts of it. So Because there's, there's community in the performance itself, and then there's community in everything else that goes into something like a Totally. Yeah, we, we're, we're at the start of our school year here, and I'm always trying to drum up you know, students to get involved in things. And one of the things that I say about it is, hey, the real community here happens when you're part of when you're part of making the play, right? It's not just in being in the play and being a character. It's part of building the set and making the costumes and all these other ways in which this community develops around it. And, you know, whether it's corny or not, we say to our students, I'm trying to make actors. Not many of our actors will go on and be famous in Broadway. We're trying to make good storytellers, theater makers, people know how to solve problems. And all of those things happen backstage. All of those things happen in the community of theater, not necessarily on the stage that, you know, themselves. So, um, yeah, that's truly another way in which the community is a big part of it. I really love the Shakespeare in the Park that you've done because it's also outside. Mm -hmm. Arena theater is a black box theater, and so it can be arranged in multiple different phenomenal ways. I've seen rivers created in it. I've seen it be just just black and have a performance in the center. 
it has so many possibilities within that space. Yeah. And at the Shakespeare in the Park, there was also the fact that you're you're in a public park. Yeah. Birds and there's nature around you as well. And you're coming together with other people. I just love the experience of it. Yeah, it, it is really a great again, um it's good to remember this. You know, I'm glad you said that because sometimes when you, like any anything that is hard and maybe worth doing, when you're in the middle of it and you do, and you forget about that, it seems really hard. And you start asking like, what am I doing this for? Why am I building this stone wall? You know, who cares? I always say about Shakespeare in the Park, the payoff of seeing, you know, a thousand people from the community come per night to see this performance. And I don't know any of them. They're just people who live in Wheaton and come to see this uh, performance. And they all bring their lawn chairs and bring their dinner and sit on the grass and like have a meal beforehand. And then, you know, the show starts and there's this wrapped, I mean, yes, there are birds flying around and kids running around and there's this sort of craziness of a park. But the fact that there's this community that doesn't know each other gather to share in this live event, like anything, like a concert or anything else. That's just, a, to me, it's a, it makes whatever trouble with the wall worth it, right? I stand there often at Shakespeare in the Park and look out at the audience more than the show. I've now seen the show dozens of times, but it's fun to see like, oh, this is a community experiencing this, right? This is why we do it. We do it so that we collectively can share in a story together. And uh, that makes it worthwhile. Where did you first find your interest in acting and in theater? Um, kind of accidentally. I, I did not do theater in high school. I was an athlete or, you know, whatever that means in high school. But that, in high school, that just meant that I didn't, didn't like the theater people. Um, they were weird, and it turns out I was right. And so I came to college sort of thinking that I would continue somewhere in that path. Um, and then this workout group that you've talked about, I found myself kind of being uh, attracted to at least an audition to it and sort of see what it was. And again, it was one of these doors that opened and I thought, oh, I'll step through it if it slams shut, you know, no big deal. Um, but I got into workout and you know, many, many times along the way, I sort of wish I hadn't, um, because I was like, what kind of weird, who is this weird girl crying on the floor over there, you know? <laughs> that's oh, that's Kim. Yeah, that's her. Uh, but but it, it was an experience of just, talk about just kind of feeling like a baby. You know, I, it, I the world of sports and that whole thing, I felt like I knew. And then to get into this process where, you know, you were laying on the ground and pretending to be a garden vegetable. Um, it sounds like I'm making that up, but that is the kind of thing you do. Um, it was so strange, you know, and yet I kept going away thinking, yeah, there's something in it, right? There's something in it that is widening the frame for me. And I just couldn't, kind of couldn't get away from it, right? I was, I was interested in it, curious about it, and not, I think, for the stardom of it, it wasn't something where I thought, oh, I want to get applause. I just kept finding myself saying, oh, that's interesting. Or this is, this is a different thing. I've got to try and pursue that. And as these things go, I, you know, you go through four years of it and you think, oh, interestingly enough, I, I might be a good actor. Um, and so you get to the end of it and I just kept falling through that door. So I, I went to grad school to to got into a good grad program at SMU in Dallas and a master's degree in acting. And that was kind of the next step for a professional actor. And then um, followed that through the open door and then went to Los Angeles and did theater and stuff. And so it just was this process where I just kept following the next step, right? Um, I don't know that there was a moment that I was like, oh, I, I think acting is for me. And somewhere along the line there, I think that I became less interested not that I'm less interested in acting, but more interested in the, the totality of it, right? Storytelling, theater, community, embodiment, th these kinds of ideas about what theater was capable of doing. And that led me more to being interested in theater making. So when I was in Los Angeles, I started a theater with some friends and that was really life-giving. And then uh, the opportunity to come back and teach, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I'll kind of follow that. 
and that you know allows me now to do more less acting more directing more producing which is more of the sort of big scale theater making that i that my skills are suited to and that i really enjoy so is that a yeah. short and full bio <laughs> But you do act, and you were it. You created a one, a one man play. I did not create it. Oh, you didn't. You didn't create it. I didn't create it. No, I got interested in this play uh, by Duncan McMillan called Every Brilliant Thing. Um, no, he wrote it. It is. It was produced in London and uh, came to New York years and years ago. And my my interest in it was just I happened to read it, and I thought this is the most unique. You know, all the things that we've already talked about, relationship to audience and the way the story gets told, this is the most unique piece of theater I'd ever seen or read. And I thought, I got to do it. So um, I ended up doing it as a faculty project. Yeah, it was really, it's really interesting. It's about depression and suicide um, told through this one guy's life as he's looking back and being a child and being the son of a mother who is depressed and suicidal. It kind of unfolds in this very kind of strange way, theatrical, the way that the audience participates in the play itself. It's really unique. If you ever get a chance to see it, even if it's not me, um, and there are better versions, uh, than, but you should see it. It's a great piece of theater. So no, shout out to Duncan McMillan uh, for writing it. I did not make it, but I was very blessed to be a part of making it happen here. So. Yeah, um, Graham was really moved by that. Yeah, I was I was glad that they were able to come and see it. And yeah, again, I, anyone who would see it and say it was really great, I would say, yeah, isn't theater amazing? I mean, it really became this idea about you don't know how, um, you just don't know how theater can change a room. And this this particular play does such a unique job of bringing the audience into the process of the story. Every time I would do it, and I've done it now, you know, eight or nine times. Um, just, just a wonderful experience of an audience being so different in terms of how they they participate in the in the process of that story. I was really moved doing it, so I was glad that an audience could see it, even a small audience. I'm glad that Graham. I did it all for Graham. <laughs> I guess this is not really a question; it's just kind of a comment that I, as I'm hearing you describe the experience of performing for different groups of people and seeing how there were almost personalities that came from different audiences. Yeah. It kind of builds that sense of maybe trust that there is going to be an audience there. There is going to be some kind of chemistry, alchemy that happens that no one could predict or plan for but arises because of weird i think you've used that word a lot <laughs> but I think there's, a, there's there's the weird there's the unknown there's the yeah totally um, unpredictable as we train actors i never i i <laughs> i shudder at the thought of saying hey listen just play it by ear right we you don't want to do that. You want to do the scripts. You want to make acting is on some level, some definition of it is repeatable craft. If you're doing a play in New York seven times a week for two years, you are trying to repeat it. Um, so there's no getting out of that part of it. Um, that being said, there's lots of things that are actually live in the moment, part of the script, but also there's this interchange going on between actors and each other and actors and audience. Again, not to sort of um, bang the embodiment drum too much. I know what podcasts we're on, but um, list be, the trust to be able to listen with your body to what is actually happening in the world around you. And in some ways, part of that repeatable craft is being able to trust the audience and trust the performers you're working with, that you are able to tell a story and live in the moment and the next moment will come, right? You cannot be ahead of yourself. Good actors do not get ahead of themselves. They stay in the moment, they listen to what's next, and then the play will take care of itself. I say this one thing, you hear that for the first time, even though you've heard it for the 150th time, and then we move on this way, and the audience responds to that in some way. 
there is there is deep trust. You know, I'll, I'll say to a cast before opening night when everyone's nervous, is is look at each other and depend on each other. The thing you need to know next is coming out of the person's mouth on stage with you, right? And in that reality, if you can trust your partner to listen to them, they will take you to where the play needs to take you. Um, and then there's this other quality about the audience being part of it in this way that you can't predict, that you have to allow to be part of it, right? Um, if a woman screams in the audience and you just pretend like it didn't happen, everyone's going to feel weird. Um, you have to at least say, hey, there are people in the room with me and I'm doing this thing and there's people as part of it. And how you navigate that, it takes some thing, you know, it takes a young actor some time to learn. Uh, I had this great thing happen. Um, I was directing this play, Importance of Being Earnest. This, you know, everyone knows this play. So at the end of the play, you know, we're in this little black box as you described it. Audience is very close on two sides and we're kind of in the middle and and the actor's playing Ernest, the, the lead character, spends the whole play pretending he's this character named Ernest, and he finds out his name is not Ernest. But he gets to the very end of the play, and he gets this book in front of him, which has his name in it, what he was actually given, his birth name. He's flipping through this book. It's the last line in the play. He's looking down the book and trying to find the name, and he gets to the point and says, oh, my name actually is... And he pauses for a second, and this lady in the front row goes, Ernest! right out loud. And the audience just bust up. I mean, everyone died. You know, here's this lady like saying the last line of the play. And she said the last word of the play before the actor could say it. And everyone in the room was dying, you know, and the actress are dying. And to the actor's credit, he just kind of held the book and he looked right at her and he said, yeah, like, you're right. And we didn't mess up. No one messed up. You were engaged in the play. You did exactly the right thing. You didn't shame her he didn't he just said like let's bring that into the story this is one of my favorite moments that's ever happened where the audience the audience are so engaged they say are saying the line right and and then the actor too willing to say no not freeze up not freak out but willing to then let that into the experience and say yeah you nailed it that is the last line that's, that's fantastic i loved it Amazing. It's a great story. How do you nurture that in your students? What are some of the ways that you train that? There's exercises and ways that you can talk about it. I, I think things like improv, uh, not necessarily Second City improv, you know, uh, Second City improv is a kind of similar um, sibling to this, but I think any, any exercises where students get to develop their ability to listen, their ability to participate in the moment they're in, um, which again takes engaging body in my classes. We should do some kind of physical work before doing anything else because you want the you want the breath to be involved, you want the body to be involved, because that is where impulses and instincts come from. They don't come from your big old brain, even though you think you're so smart, right? Which is what our students think. They come from your ability to say, oh, my my reflexes, my impulse comes out of this place. So if you can warm up that part of your body and then you can give them exercises where they begin to practice it, right? So there's a lot of things that uh, exercises we do in class where you do some kind of physical work that expands how you are thinking about your body and then that extends your physical range in some way. Um, and then it's just experience, just giving people enough chances for that to happen. And and I'm not sure that they will learn it in college. And for many of our students who are going on to be something else in their lives besides actors, it's really valuable to awaken, awaken that bodily listening ability to all the ways in which they're going to be in their world, right? In business or in medicine or in ministry or some other thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we think of it like a very good actor's tool, but we kind of use it as a really good liberal arts tool. Some of my memories, just to go back to... Um, crying on the floor. Crying on the floor and workout, um, were that it was a holding environment. I mean, that's what, that's the word that I would use now as a clinician. That was present for me back then. And a sense that what 
wanted or needed to come, there was openness towards it. And there was something mm -hmm. holding the space. So there's, there is generally, it was Mark Lewis mm -hmm. um, holding sort of a psychic container. There's an audience of one, there's a witness, there's someone mm -hmm. who is, um, you might not even be conscious of your crying, <laughs> of the fact that they're there, but you do know that they're there. You know that right. they're kind of held um, by, by others. That experience of having a container and a witness informs how we can listen mm. differently to our bodies and to one another. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I don't think I've I, I thought about it that way. I mean, I don't come at it from the exact same perspective as you. So, um, yeah, I, I wonder what the tie into that and listening is. The workout experience, I mean, you, you touched on this some. I, I think when someone were to think, oh, this is theater training, that it would be that it would be some kind of scripted, organized way in which we're saying, okay, let's work on this part of it. Your English accent's terrible. Time to, you know, work on that. It's it's less about that. The workout experience this time in the afternoons on Tuesday and Thursday, I think is more about creating space for a lot of different experiences. And then being able to do that in community, that same community from which we cast the plays, I think has been a really tie-in to the strength of our theater, right? Because these people who oppose each other that evening in rehearsal are holding each other up that afternoon in workout, right? It is an unscripted environment. It's a way to which lots of the experiences and exercises in it are really based on this idea of like, what is, what is true to you right now? How do you express that in some way that is not only intellectual, but physical? Um, and then how do we support each other in that? And you're right, there is a, often a workout, there is something that it needs to be seen. So even if it's just in two groups, and this group is like 40, 45 students. One will do one project or exercise while another watches, and then they'd switch, partly because some of that is important that we sort of validate it by seeing it uh, for each other. And my colleague, Mark Lewis, who's been leading this for 25 years, does a wonderful job of sort of creating that environment uh, where it is a container where lots of things are possible. Um, but I actually think students might have a different answer on all this. They might say, it's, I've really grown as a person. This I've really, you know, I've slept a lot. <laughs> um, some also, uh, some other ones would say that's really grown them as an actor. But I think, I think the, the room functions magically as both because growing in these parts of your experience or being able to pay attention to who you are does eventually make you a better actor. It does eventually make you a better storyteller, right? The two fit into each other pretty well. Who were your primary mentors? I love that you're stretching. We can stretch during the. <laughs> no, whenever whenever a, a, a question makes me nervous, I'm going to stretch. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> That's your tell. Oh, the mentors. Oh, brother, here we go. <laughs> I'm going to tell Graham that so that when you guys are playing poker in person, he can pay attention to when you stretch. Oh, well, I, I have other techniques in poker, so Graham's still going to lose money. Yeah, so did you, did you have particular people who, whose storytelling really compelled you? Yeah, I, I, there certainly was teachers along the way. I mean, Mark Lewis is somebody who is now my colleague, was once my mentor. You know, I mean, you and I both learned under him. Certainly, that was a jumping off place for me. For, understanding what theater was and what it could be to me at that point. And then there were several great directors and acting teachers in grad school. Cecil O'Neill was one of my early acting teachers who just really, his style and what he wanted to push out of a person. And again, this is the next step going to grad school where the training is to become a professional actor. I mean, there was less being in a container and holding things as much as just like, you got to actually do that English accent, you know, uh, the way that they would talk about um, theater or or using technique, sort of deep actor technique on how you relate to another actor 
is really powerful to me. It's like anything, Ken. There's those things in your life where someone says the same thing but words it differently, and you go, oh, that's so great. It's not that different, right? There's nothing new under the sun. But it helps us as humans sometimes to hear that rephrased in some way that just clicks in. And there were times along the way, certainly where mentors said something a little bit differently and it just, you know, sparked for me. And all those people are significant. You know, the other way I would answer this question is to say, I think it's more about those experiences along the way, right? Working with people to make something happen and then seeing it happen and seeing an audience respond to it. Um, That had kind of a mentorship that I would look back now and say, oh, you know, it's so great to see how that went and to see how I was able to be part of that. Or working with students. Now it's so rewarding because I get to push them a little further along. Seeing that happen is so rewarding that I can't get away from it, right? To go back to where we started, I never 20 years ago would have had any idea about why theater is important in a digitized world. And now I feel like we got to hold on because we're, we are the small group holding on to how important this is. It's such an antidote to, you know, my teenagers and their phones and, you know, all the other ways in which we are just disconnected from each other. And as much as anything along the way, I hold on to this idea that like, Hey, guess what? We're going to work on the story. And then some people are going to be in the room with us. And there's nothing better than that. to me. There's nothing more important than that um, in terms of theater. So. Yes. Um, to, to bring in the, the carpentry and the woodwork, how does that relate? I know that that's part of your skills that you bring to creating sets and imagining right. yeah. uh, environments. Um, but it's also this whole world that's kind of, well, I imagine that it's recuperative for you to go away yeah, from the audience into your, your, yeah. your shop and make things that are beautiful out of wood. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, I, recuperative is a great way to describe it. I think, you know, as much as I might sound like I'm really excited about it, by, by the end of the school year, I'm like, okay, listen, I need to be making some woodwork by myself because I need to be away from people. Um, so there is that part of it for sure. Uh, you know, again, I, I think that's a skill I picked up along the way, you know, if you're an actor, you better have another good job, something else you're good at, right? So it was my thing that I was good at when I was living in Los Angeles and building furniture. And yeah, on a practical level, it's another way for me to sort of make some money and do something else, which I really enjoy. As long as my physical life will allow me to, meaning my hands and that I can do it, I will continue to do it. There's something so satisfying about working with your hands creating something out of, you know, raw materials. And we do that in theater, but in theater, it's a little bit weird because it's this fake world, right? Um, I say to students all the time, like, we're going to make this thing. It's going to look great. But it only has to last for three weeks, right? <laughs> we're just going to make it. Let's just hold on there, Seth. Um, whereas, you know, the other in the other part of my world where I'm creating, I'm trying to make something that last generation. There's something so satisfying about working with your hands in a shop, especially with a material like wood, which is what I mostly work with. Um, it is so amazing to see what comes out of an idea or solving a problem for a client or making something that someone has imagined and drawn on paper into an actual object. Most recently, in the last few years, I've been into turning bowls, this whole other sort of subset of woodworking that I didn't really have access to until a few years ago and i'm i'm in love with it uh this process of going from cut down tree you know i take all my materials from trees that were cut down in the city or neighborhoods and i go from this thing that's going to be firewood or mulch and i save part of it and then i use a chainsaw to chop it into the size that i can put on the lathe and then out of that thing comes this object over time, because it takes a long time to get to that process, that is a bowl or 
something else, you know, a base or something out of this piece of wood. It's, it's a little bit of treasure hunting. It's a little bit of discovering what is inside of the wood. You know, there's just sort of idea of like the wood tells me what it wants to be, which I'm always like, no, it doesn't. You tell the wood, let's be honest. But I've never felt that more in, in a bowl because you end up with a chunk of wood that you can't really figure out what it is. And as you begin to carve away, you get to really discover, oh, this this got this beautiful grain in it that I couldn't see from the outside. And the thing becomes, it's it kind of comes into its own form in a different way than any other woodworking that I've been a part of. So that's been a real delight the last few years. I'm in love with that process. So it's my new addiction, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm going to leave this interview early and go turn the bowl. Now that I start talking about it, I got excited. <laughs> can, we, can, we, can we close down this interview? I want to go make a bowl. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is embodied in theater garbage. Let's, let's go make something. <laughs> yeah. One last um, question that I have is related to kind of growing up and any connection that you can make between being third culture. So you spent some time growing up in the Philippines. I did. You speak Tagalog. I do. Then you came to the U.S. and you've lived most of your adult life in the United States. Um, So just wondering whether any of that experience of being third culture informed this desire to tell stories or to understand yourself in the world and that might relate to acting it's not a very formed question but i'm just curious whether you see any connection um that's a really good question i don't know that i've ever tried to make that connection so let's just assume that we're going to edit this part out. I think my very broken attempt to connect these things would be to say, you know, the one way I would describe my growing up is that we moved a lot and there were no connections, right? So this is before ways in which you could keep in contact with people. And so I made friends very quickly, but I was also very aware that I was not going to hold on to any friends. So I did some calculating a while back and I think like, by seventh or eighth grade, I'd been in seven or eight different schools. Like it just was never the same. Um, it was kind of moving back and forth all the time. It kind of felt transient. And yet I wasn't, I don't, wouldn't describe myself as lonely in that process. I just was kind of, you know, taking it as it went along. So I don't know that I had this deep desire. Maybe, you know, one of our psychologist friends could sit down with me and unpack this thing that I'm not aware of in myself and need some working on. But that's not outside the realm of possibility. Over time, I've become attracted to this idea that we need to tie ourselves to other people. And theater to me seems like at least within the toolbox I have, the most present way to do that. Um, so is there a loose, loose connection to this lost, you know, this childhood of lost friends? Maybe I can make make the connection. I don't think that I came sort of saying this part of me is broken, needs to be repaired, as much as just being able to see over time. And I think now as I'm directing and working with students and producing, I have more control in being able to say, let's make these events happen where students get to practice this thing and people get to watch it. And somehow this unity, this community begins to take place. That is that is the most important thing to me about this work. So that's kind of a strange attempt at your at an answer i love that answer yeah kind of but still you should edit it out so. i'm not going to i'm going to keep every last bit <laughs> speaking of um please give katie a big hug i miss her i certainly will i certainly will thank you so much for this conversation is great do you have anything yeah. else that you wanted to say or? No, no, no. I think it's, I was great. You know, this could be the interview that buries the whole project. So you never know. I just hope that I didn't pull the whole thing down. <laughs> I'm ready for a break anyway. There you go. There you go. That's, I'm glad that I'm glad I was able to do it. <laughs>
<laughs> kill the return to embodiment with one in That's it. Right. Well, the next version after this break would be the return to the return to embodiment. <laughs> the arising of the zombified return to embodiment. That's right. I mean, whatever it takes. <laughs> I appreciate you. Good to see you. So nice to see you. And I love what you're doing. Counterculture, yeah, creating community. Trying. We're trying. Reversing the digital dehumanization with the power of theater. I love it. Thank you to Andy Mangan for talking with me, making me laugh, for doing this amazing work that involves investing so deeply into the weird and wondrous phenomenon of theater, a rebellious vision, one that involves embodiment and community building and collective play. Thank you to Josie Rothwell for the opening music and Erin Kate Dunnick for the closing music. Thank you to my patrons and the Embodied Education Institute of Chicago for sponsoring this podcast. And thank you to my listeners for joining me once again in the return to embodiment.